I don't have a tolerance anymore for like narratives that use a woman's rape to like fix things between men or like make it ultimately about the male characters or like forward the story of the male characters. Like I, I just don't, sorry, sorry, not Mm. sorry. I don't fuck with that anymore. No, that's valid. That's really valid. And I think. Hello everyone, this is Alex. And this is Em. Welcome to the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. This is a podcast for TV lovers, movie buffs, and binge watchers of all ages. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we loved, what we hated, and what's just a bit problematic about the TV and movies that we're addicted to, and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode outtakes, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Today we'll be opening season six of GBB Outlaws. This season, we'll be discussing TV series whose central characters are constantly on the wrong side of the law, how the narratives are shaped, and what we can learn from the damaged protagonists therein. To start things off, today, Em and I will be discussing the first seasons of the gripping FX original drama, Sons of Anarchy. Based loosely on Shakespeare's Hamlet, Sons of Anarchy gives us an uncomfortably close glimpse into the life of a more modern, tortured prince, Jax Teller, and uses the recurring themes of loyalty, brotherhood, betrayal, and redemption to deliver a host of resonating cautionary tales about gang life. So what exactly do we think made Sons of Anarchy so compelling? Stay tuned. All right, everyone. So, um, Sense of Anarchy is a crime drama, a crime tragedy, precisely, and a neo-Western. It was created by Kurt Sutter. It aired from September 3rd, 2008 till December 9th, 2014 on FX. It lasted for 92 episodes and seven seasons, and it had one spinoff, Mayans MC. The show stars Charlie Hunnam as Jackson Jax Teller, Katie Seagal as Gemma Teller Morrow, Jack's mother, Maggie Siff as Tara Knowles Teller, Jax's wife. And just a little caveat here, I understand that her name is pronounced Tara throughout the show, but we will be saying Tara for most of this podcast. You've been warned. (laughs) Ron Perlman stars as Clarence, a.k.a. Clay Morrow, Gemma's husband and Jax's stepfather for most of the show. Ryan Hurst as Harry Opie Winston, Jax's best friend. Mark Boone Jr. as Robert Munson, a.k.a. Bobby Elvis. Theo Rossi as Juan Carlos, a.k.a. Juice Ortiz. Drea DiMatteo as Wendy Case, Jax's ex-wife and his first son, Abel's mother. William Lucking as Piermont Winston, a.k.a. Piney. He is Opie's father. Kim Coates as Alexander Traeger, a.k.a. Tig. Tommy Flanagan as Philip Telford, a.k.a. Chibs. Jimmy Smith as Nero Padilla, 
This is Gemma's boyfriend after Clay. Dayton Cali as Wayne Unser. David Labrava as Happy Loman. Winter Avzoli as Lila Winston, Opie's second wife. Johnny Lewis as Edward Kip Epps, a.k.a. Half Sack. And Kurt Sutter himself as Big Otto Delaney, one of the OGs of the club. So... These are all our major players. These are the people that will have the biggest impact throughout the series. And as Alex mentioned in our opening, this is a show about a gang and gang life. They don't call themselves a gang. They call themselves a motorcycle club, specifically Sam Crow, which stands for Sons of Anarchy Motorcycle Club Redwood Original. So Otto is one of the OGs of the club. He was one of the original of the Sam Crow chapter. It was JT, Clay, Bobby, Piney, and Otto. They were the originals of the Sam Crow chapter. Um, And Otto's been locked up um, on some gang-related activity for at least 10 years now, the show alludes. They never give us an exact number. Uh, Leaving um, his wife, Luann, on the outside. Um, Otto doesn't have any children that we know of, but he went to prison with only one good eye. And if anything, he's very loyal to the club. The club doesn't even mention Otto unless... They need something from Otto or Otto's requesting to see them. Um, but he's doing time because Otto's no snitch. And um, he becomes a character that has a greater character arc following Luann's death because he becomes more integrated in the plot um, of what's going on on the outside. But Otto, from the time we meet him until the time that he leaves the series, is incarcerated Um and he suffers greatly as a result. So season one is, epi- is 13 episodes long. And this is where we meet Sam Crow. Um, they all, they have matching tattoos. They have a figurehead. They have a crest. They have jackets, um, a- aka their cuts, their leather cuts that they wear. Um, they engage in criminal activity together, but they're definitely not a gang. <laughs> Right. Bless yeah. those crazy kids. <laughs> so we meet our protagonist, Jax, and he is kind of the prince of this motorcycle club. His father was the original president of Sam Crow, this this chapter of the Sons of Anarchy. And uh, his father, John, is long deceased, and his mother, Gemma, has been married to his stepfather, Clay, for several years now. I want to say at least 10 or 15 at this point. Um, Jax is in his mid-20s when the show opens, and in that pilot episode is, I believe, when he makes his first kill, which drastically shifts the trajectory of the show. This and finding his late father's manuscript, as well as the birth of his first son, Abel, who's born prematurely, 10 weeks prematurely, to his ex-wife, Wendy, who is a meth addict. So let's get into all these things. And um, Because when I got into season one, I saw Jax is very tortured. I still felt that way from till the end of the season. But... I think seasons one and two are probably the last time I could make excuses for Jax's behavior. (laughs) Yeah. I don't feel a lot for Jax. Like I feel for him in the sense of like, he's affiliate, he's gang affiliated, right? Like he was born into, to this. He, this was always going to be his life in some capacity because of 
his father and because of Clay, his stepfather, who the show alludes to, has been who the who the show has alluded to. Um, Clay has raised him for pretty much his most formidable years. Right, um, and you know. A lot of times when we see television shows and films about gang life, you're going to have at least one of the parents, if not both, right, who are in this life, but they don't want their kids in this life. Sons of Anarchy, we don't see that, at least not for Jax. Both Gemma and Clay very strongly encourage um, and downright manipulate his membership in Sam Crow, right? Right. And it's, um, and I think the way the show differentiates this between other sort of narratives of this nature is that the show sets up Sam Crow, particularly this chapter, as um, its own little kingdom. Initially, when we meet the, the motorcycle gang and like the club and the guys in it, it's not just that they are existing within this gang, it's that they are existing in this gang, but the town that they live in, that the gang resides in, that the gang resides in, is very much supportive of the gang presence. Um, we find out that the outs outside of the town of Charming, on the outskirts, there's lots of gun violence. There's lots of drugs. Um, there's lots of criminal elements that the that until now the motorcycle club has kept out of Charming. Um, Lots of elements, and then not even just criminal elements in the sense of guns and drugs, but also corporate vulture developers have also been kept out of Charming due to the gang's presence. So this is a town that's been able to sort of be stuck in time in a way that they want. And that's why you have all this support for the club. And that's what differentiates it. You'll have a lot of characters within the narrative remark on this. Hale, in part- Hale who is uh, the police chief uh, in particular, will remark on this. He'll say, I don't believe in Sam Crow. You're a criminal element. You're, you shouldn't be here, which he's right. But he's also, but then he will make the remark and speak and say, but the town sees you as a necessary evil. The town wants you to be here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Right. So, um, and I'm glad you brought up like this particular chapter because we go before we go any further, it has to be pointed out that this is this Sam Crow is the chapter that our 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 principal cast belong to is only one of many Sons of Anarchy motorcycle clubs across the country. They even have a chapter in Ireland, right? Well, the Ireland one is the original one, like the OG, OG one. That is true. But they're already in some illegal shit. They're already dealing firearms. Um, So they are, they are indirectly or directly, however you want to look at it, you know, ensuring violence um, in other communities through the sale of these illegal firearms. Um, this is so far from the vision that Jax's father and, you know, the founders of the Sons of Anarchy had. Um, in season one, we're thrown into uh, the birth of Jax's eldest son, Abel. Abel's born 10 weeks prematurely. He's hanging on by a thread because in addition to being born prematurely, he's also born... Um, 
with further compromises and complications because of his mother, Wendy's meth addiction. Wendy is Jax's ex-wife at this point. The pilot of the show is excellent. I say this a lot about the shows that I like, but the reason, the thing that makes this, this pilot excellent is it doesn't just show you the character of many principal um, people on this show. It also foreshadows the trajectory of several relationships on the show. In the pilot, after Wendy gives birth, Gemma, Jax's mother, actually brings her some meth and is like, you know what? Go ahead and finish the job. We Nobody wants to hear you almost killed my grandson. And Wendy has an overdose that thankfully isn't fatal. And we see from that interaction the control that she has over Wendy. And we see in her interactions with Jax the control that she has over him. She rules Wendy through intimidation. And she rules Jax through a sort of emotional incest and a manipulation of um, love for him and the love that she feels entitled to from him. Um, we also meet Jax's ex-girlfriend and first love, Tara Knowles, who comes back to Charming and re-enters his life. But unbeknownst to him, she has her own baggage in the form of a stalker, a federal agent whom she dated back when she was in Chicago. We learn a lot about Clay, Jax's stepfather, who for the most part we see very clearly is a good stepfather to Jax and is a decent enough father figure, you know, taking in context, obviously, you don't want your, uh, someone's stepfather to be a gang leader. Jax's best friend, Opie, is released from prison. He had done three or four years, uh, club-related, of course, and he's trying to reintegrate into society and make up for lost time with his wife, Donna, and their two children, and try to find a way to earn a living. Because I feel like Prison had him shook a little bit. I won't say scared straight, but shook a little bit. He knows he could go in again. He knows he could go in for longer. He knows the risks of being incarcerated. And he's really trying to to take a lesser role in the club. Um, but like you said about Jax, it's the same thing for Opie. His father, Piney, is one of the OGs of the, the Sam Crow chapter. So not that he never had a choice, but more like he never really had a chance, which I think is a bit different. <laughs> They're struggling to get by. And Opie asks his father for help. Like, you know, most people do. They ask their parents for help. And Opie's father's first, who's his name is Piney, and he's a, he's a character that will recur and we'll see him a lot. Piney's instinct and first thing that he tells Opie is to say, oh, we'll just go back to working for the club and doing illegal things. He doesn't even really try to help or, you know, encourage this new turnover in any sort of way. Which is sad. It's really sad when you think about it. Especially later when we meet Opie's mother in the series. Um, she talks about how, you know, she left Piney. Um, cause I guess she wanted better for herself and her kid and she just didn't want their lives in danger. But from the time he was 14, Opie was constantly running away to be with Piney. And even though she was a parent that didn't want this life for her son, he pursued it. And, you know, I think when he came to Piney and Piney was like, just go back to work. It made him realize a little too late what his mother had been trying to protect him from. 
what I think is really impressive about the first season, uh, particularly in these beginning episodes, is the show has a very defined look about it. We talk about that, about how important it is for a show to have a very defined, original sort of look and feel and tone to it. And something that really helps to hammer home this idea of Jax being sort of royalty and um, these allegories to Hamlet uh, is this sort of all these spoken and unspoken rules of the of the I almost said the MCU um, these unspoken <laughs> rules of the motorcycle club um, and one of those and one of these great tools that they do is when they all sit at um, the table. There's this gorgeous, very large, very gorgeous, beautifully carved table in the motorcycle club that they all sit around and Clay sits at the head of it with the gavel, a.k.a. the crown, sort of making judgments and decisions. And they quote unquote vote on it, but there's very um, much a sort of Knights of the Round table-esque type of, of feel to it, which... I think is probably the thing the most that hammers home this idea. Right. When we enter the series, Clay is the president of the club. He was VP when um, John Teller was alive. And it's very clear that as for no, really literally no other reason than he is John Teller's son, Jax is, and, and Clay doesn't have any children, that Jax is, obviously going to be next in line to be their president right yes yeah so like he's like the crown prince they give him a reverence that no other members his age and i'm not just talking about initiates like no other full members his age get this kind of reverence and people sort of like bending over backward to accommodate be accommodating to him most of the wives on the show don't work wives and girlfriends let's put that out there because it is a theme we will discuss later alex and i have had conversations about the how misogyny plays a role on this show and how it holds everybody back <laughs> opie i believe is one of, opie and otto are kind of like the first cautionary tales that we see of gang life opie more so in season one um when he is released and he's trying to make a better life and whatnot Opie is brought in by ATF agent Stahl, and he's constantly being brought in. And he doesn't give them anything. And his wife Donna doesn't give them anything. But just seeing him constantly being brought in sets off alarm bells for Clay. And so Clay uses Tig to put out a hit on Opie. Doesn't talk about it, doesn't vote on it. The two of them join heads, and he's like, Tig, Opie's gotta go. Um, Agent Stahl is trying to use Opie and the fact that Opie, Opie is on probation and struggling to earn an honest living for himself to support his wife and kids in order to get Opie to snitch and therefore bring a RICO case on Sam Crow. He doesn't do that, but Clay is paranoid and wants him taken out. Clay does come to his senses and realize that Opie has not turned snitch and goes to call off the hit at the last minute. But Tig misses the call and accidentally kills Opie's wife, Donna, because he and Donna had swapped cars that night. Um, so Opie becomes our first cautionary tale. 
he doesn't realize until like season two that the club is responsible for killing Donna, but his wife is murdered in season one. And it was directly at the hands of his so-called brothers. Right. And how this all comes about is there's an explosion at their sort of gun manufacturing place is what sets off this investigation into the club and more important and like more so and more importantly, Agent Stahl, who will be um, a a figure throughout the first couple of seasons, is trying to make a name for herself as an agent. And her goal is to like break up this MC. And it's not just Agent Stahl. There's another ATF agent that inadvertently enters the mix via Tara. She's running from this dude, her ex, who happens to be an ATF agent, and he follows her to Charming. And long story short, she ends up shooting this guy in self-defense when he tries to rape her. And then she calls Jax over to help her, and Jax finishes the job murdering him. And the two of them have to deal with this. But the ATF knows, even if they cannot um, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jax is directly responsible for this agent's murder. Well, his murder, while consequential, I think, for the narrative of Taryn Jax, is inconsequential to the plot because they do remark that he's not supposed to be there. Like, he's not supposed to be in Charming. He's actually, like, in fact, when he, before he gets shot, um, after, before he gets shot, after Jax beats him up, Agent Stahl and Hale both confront him and they're like, you're not, you're not supposed to be here. In fact, he's on his way to jail. And like he, that's how sort of out of bounds he is. So when his body goes missing, Stahl remarks on it, but nobody is uh, particularly, yeah, Stahl remarks on it and she has suspicions that it's, it's Jax. No one's like hardcore investigating it because there is no body. They assume that he just ran. Right. Um, season one also, I feel, gives us a, a little bit about Wendy's character. So Wendy is a meth addict and people throw that in her face all the time. Just throughout the series, every single one of these people will throw that in her face. Um, Wendy knows when she is being manipulated and she knows how specifically Gemma operates when she's being manipulative. In season one, she sees that Gemma is trying to use her to drive a wedge between Jax and Tara. And um, she basically plays her position. She knows how Jax feels about her, that at their best, all they had was a very close friendship. And he was never in love with her the way that he was in love with Tara. And that Gemma doesn't want her around either. Gemma just thinks that she's easier to control. This is why... Wendy is a character that I would always root for, for the duration of the series. I think she's probably not one of the best written characters. I think all the characters are written very well, but just one of the best people on the show. So season one ends with everybody sort of reeling from Donna's death. In fact, um, everyone is going to Donna's funeral. Uh, the house is sort of being prepared. Everyone is there to pay their respects. And through everything, Hale, the, the Hale who's the, the police chief or the upcoming police chief. Right, because the current one is Wayne Unser, yes? 
Yes. Unser, so Wayne Unser is another character that we'll meet, and he is the current police chief. He is not, he's a police chief in name only, um, mm. not in practice, uh, because it, he is paid and bought for by the MC and by Clay. And he. So season one ends with Hale giving Jax the truth about how Donna died. Um, it was not a gang that they sell guns to, but it, it, it was in fact Clay. Up until this point, Jax, to a certain extent, has been sort of shirking his responsibilities, um, and shirking the sort in the in, shirking the inevitability of his rise to power. And Jax intervenes and stops the club on Clay's orders from killing a young girl. That and the internal frictions within the club all come to a head at. Um, Donna's funeral. So what were your thoughts on season one? Good, bad, or basic? Season one is really great. I think it's easy for a show like this to get lost. There's a lot that season one does. There's a lot of exposition and a lot of explaining that this show has to do and does. And it does it in a, and it does it in a way that I'm not so bored out of my mind. And I think that's hard for a lot of shows to do. Um, I think... There And this is something I'll talk about as we were talking throughout the seasons, but I think there's a real, there's a real impressiveness for, to me with, I think, the makeup and the costume design and the camera work that v- is visually telling a story um, that, yeah, that's telling a story visually that I can really understand and really solidifies a lot of these ideas um, that the show is trying to convey about the positions and the hierarchy within the club that ha- don't necessarily have to do with them talking. And I think that's a hard thing to do. I think all of these performances are stand out. Um, all these characters I understand. Uh, and if I don't, and I don't really particularly like them, any of them, but, um, but I, I get, I get them and there's there's just a lot of good here, so I I give it a solid good. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think that the exposition was very well done. Season one was very good in my opinion. I didn't like the majority of the characters I was introduced to. You know, Juice was okay. I really liked Wendy. I liked Tara in season one initially, um, uh, but characters like Clay, Gemma, Jax, Opie. Even if you don't like them, they make a very distinct impression. You're very clear on who they are, and you are invested in them, whether you like them or not. And I think that is also hard to do, to make people want to see more of even characters that they they um, are ambivalent about or whom they hate. So I thought season one was very, very good. From pilot to closing, I think every episode did what it had to do, um, you know, in regards to building up the narrative, letting you know more about Sam Crow, um, and letting you know about more about the microcosm of the the Tara Jacks relationship, the Gemma Jacks relationship, and the Wendy Gemma relationships um, that will be a constant source of tension throughout the series. Right. Those tensions are made clear. Mm-hmm. 
So let's jump into season two. Also 13 episodes long. You know what? Shout out to whomever decided that shows didn't need to be 22 um, episodes long per season in order to be valid. (laughs) It's the cable networks. The cable networks definitely ushered in this. Okay, so season two picks up uh, post Donna's death. Opie is adjusting to life as a single father. Yeah, Agent Stahl is still in Charming trying to make her case against the sons, but we have an introduction of new players into the the ring uh, trying to control Charming, and that is Ethan Zobel and AJ Weston, who are the neo-Nazis. I don't know, white power people. I don't know. Like, I don't try to make sense of those people. And they are big antagonists, and they, for the first half of the season, and they are here to break up the MC and to take over Charming and uh, make Charming a hotbed for development and drugs for the prison population. So let's be clear. Just because Zobel and his crew are neo-Nazis, don't get the impression that Sam Crow aren't racist themselves. Because they are. They are. <laughs> um, they might not have like swastikas and like H tattoos, but they are racist. They do want to keep their neighborhood and um, the town of Charming white. Um, they use racial slurs all the fucking time, but they somehow think that they are like morally superior to the Aryan nation. It's whatever. Right. Um, Something I actually think is really interesting about Kurt Sutter and the show in general. The sons are very racist, very homophobic, uh, very misogynistic, but it just is, which I don't think is a surprise for like people of color or like women who are marginalized um, or gay people. Like, I think we very much understand that white people like that just are. But you don't see that sort of nakedness about it in television very much, which I find fascinating. Sons of Anarchy did not, at its airing, get a lot of love from the Emmys in the way that, say, a Breaking Bad did. Um, It is not very beloved by critics in the way that a Breaking Bad is. And I've racked my brain a lot to think about why that is. There's a lot of thinking I've done about this, uh, about why this isn't in the past couple of days. I've thought about this a lot. And I think a big part of it is, one, I don't think critics like stories about poor white people or white people that they uh, conceive of to be uh, of a lower class than them, whether that's actual money or behavior. And Sons is definitely about poor white people. They also, like, behave like poor white people. And I also don't think that... I think critics don't like this idea of... um, They don't like it when white people are just racist. Like, they don't... they, They need their racism in a very specific way. They don't like depictions of white people like like the sons of anarchy, like white people that are just like, yeah, we're racist and misogynistic and homophobic. It just is. This Mm -hmm. is who we are. Like that really bothers them. They don't like the, just the honesty of it. They need their racism in, in, in really nice, pretty language. They prefer their racism of like, you know, I really hope that in the next couple of years, like people in, um, 
you know, the African continent, think about ways of sustainability that will be in the way of having less children because, like, we're suffering from an overpopulation problem. Like, that's how they like their racism, Mm. you know? (laughs) They don't like it in the way that I think Sons of Anarchy is, where it's it's very honest and it's very just like, yeah, this is is it. It just is. Right. Um, We've discussed this briefly when we talked about other shows where I... like on Jack and Bobby, I, th- I said how I absolutely believe and I've witnessed it to be on, on a couple of occasions, a sort of rite of passage for white boys to participate in acts of violence against either girls, people of other races, or um, children whom they presume to be queer. But it's almost never shown on TV. I also said that this type of language that we get specifically from Sam Crow, the ones that are not affiliated with any type of Aryan movement, but still are racist in their speech on a daily basis, is typical of white people when they're not in mixed companies. That is also very rarely seen. When we talked about Malcolm in the Middle and I talked about how, you know, this is the average white family. Um, that type of poverty where they're not on the streets, but everybody, um, they don't have new things. The kids are wearing hand-me-downs and both parents are working constantly. And that is also rarely shown. I absolutely believe that white people have a very dysfunctional relationship with what they consider to be the worst depictions of their community. And there's a lot of media propaganda to sweep that shit under the rug and pretend like it's not there. Even when you talk about the racism and misogyny on Sons of Anarchy, most white shows that have characters that do this very quickly turn it into a very special episode. Someone says a racial slur, everyone gasps in shock and awe, and oh my God, I never thought you would say that. I've never said that in my life. Let's talk to him and have a sit down and an intervention about it so he'll become a better person. Sons of Anarchy isn't like that. They're racist. They're all racist. Everybody knows it and they live it. Period. (laughs) Period. And there's an, or if it's not like a very special episode, then that particular person is like the villain. But it's like, um, but on Sons, it's like, no, they're racist, but like vest in them as a character and be invested in this story. That's extremely hard for 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 white critics but it's also the most honest and funny enough it's i think it's fascinating that you know the sons are racist and and like i said misogynistic and homophobic very virtually it's very apparent uh Gemma and tara both engage in a lot of internalized misogyny and the sons themselves are extremely misogynistic uh yet i think this is the only show that i think thinks about that thinks about the way that misogyny operates and then thinks about race. And then funny enough, I don't think Sons doesn't really also Sons doesn't try to pretend that like people, other people of color just don't exist like other shows, like a Breaking Bad does eventually. Right. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to a certain season of Breaking Bad, there are no more people of color um, at all. Zero. Uh, And the show is just like, Oh, you know, I don't know. Like, (laughs) those colored people don't exist but sons continually i mean from first season even from first season sons is like no yeah like people of color here they live here we work with them we see them (laughs) like we don't like them but they are integral to our lives in a way that we cannot separate like as much as we try 
we still need them for our own means and ends. Whereas I think, and ultimately that is what makes Sons of Anarchy better than Breaking Bad fight me. Don't care. There's a lot of things that make Sons of Anarchy better than Breaking Bad. And I'll, I probably, I can't even list them all at once right now. I'll probably do it for the duration of this episode and the next episode and our Breaking Bad episodes. I'll probably be thinking of new ways that this show's better. Same. I'll be thinking of all the ways that this show is much better. Um, because I've, I don't, I don't know. I just don't understand y'all's king. That's all I'm saying. But, um. But speaking of people of color, I thought it was super interesting that the the Sons of Anarchy did this because we already have white antagonists, right, in the form of the Aryan Nation, who live also live in Charming. But then they and Charming is an all white community. It could be so easy to be like, okay, this white gang versus that white gang, and we never discuss anything else. But you have to consider what Sam Crow is doing. They're in illegal arms when we're introduced to them, and they later delve into the drug trade. You cannot whitewash that, period. And it's set in California. So you have the Niners and you have um, you have uh, the the Latino gang. The Mayans, um, yeah. Is it the Mayans? I thought the Mayans were a spinoff of this show. Weren't they it called a, something? No, they're, they're, the, they're the Mayans and Sons. The Mayans oh. is the spinoff, but like they're also called the Mayans. And it's like a whole thing. Oh, I got you. I got you. So that you have the Mayans, you have the one Niners, which is the black gang. Um, and you also have their kings and their overlords and their head honchos. And then you have Henry Lin and his crew as well. Exactly. So you have all these people, you have all these players. And besides having them exist, what the show does very well is it shows the level playing fields in between people of similar levels of power. They show you that a Clay and a Jax is no match for Henry Lynn because he's he's above their pay grade. Um, they're on the same level as like the people who are active members of the One Niners, for example. And they show you the One Niners and the Mayans and how they're not that different from the Suns in regards to how they've convinced themselves as well that they're doing this for their community. Right. And they show how, you know, a, a Clay and an Alvarez, who is the leader of the Mayans, um, he's president. Clay has to, even though that they have, even though they have this like really, the Mayans and the Suns have this like blood feud between them, they still have to, um, Clay still has to respect like his place, like in, in the hierarchy or like where he sits for the things that he does. And that, yeah, that's very interesting. Right. Um, Speaking of Marcus Alvarez, it was a really great episode. Not like it's not even the whole episode was literally like three minutes of conversation between Marcus Alvarez and Jax. And Jax basically showed up at this dude's house out of desperation. And he's like, listen, you know, the rules of engagement. Don't ever fucking come to my house. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you know, Alvarez and Tig. Oh, is it? Is it Alvarez and Tig? Mm hmm. Yeah. So he's like, don't ever come to my house. Those are the rules. Like, no matter what y'all beef is on the street, you never go to the place where this man's, you know, wife or girlfriend and children live ever. Right. Ever. Um, um, there is some sort of yeah, code. Some There is a code. There is a, a hierarchy. There is a, a thing. But yeah, I also so season two is interesting. Um, and I think this stuff with Zobel, I think it's accurate in the way that like I think white people even like racist white people 
like to somehow think they're above <laughs> um white like they're above those types of people i think that's very accurate i think that's mm. a thing that white people do that's strange to me um it's so strange yeah that lift, the, the denial is a hell of a drug drug um but uh they are they are at odds with them and that plot resolves when essentially they self-destruct because Ethan Zobel, we find out, is a plant from a confidential informant for the CIA, either the CIA or the FBI. And so he has like immunity status. So he just continues to make money and do whatever as as the, the FBI is building its case. His Aryan Nation people defect uh, from him when they realize that he is working with the Mayans to expand the drug trade into prisons. And the whole thing was does that, like, you know, white power <laughs> or whatever. Right. Um, so they're, it's, they're not supposed to do business with the coloreds. <laughs> with the coloreds. Um, it's an interesting plot. I think the thing that gets me about it is that it does do this thing that I think is really silly um, where the show frames it as like, see, there is no, in reality, there is no um, race. There's just money and money will always win out at the end of the day. And I'm like, "Mm, no, like, yes, but no. I mean, I think that's, I can see how that could be interpreted, but I saw it more like race exists and white white supremacy exists, but white supremacists will always love money more than they hate other races. (laughs) Yeah. And that's not real. (laughs) Like that's not real or else like, like things would be different. Things would be very, very different if that was like a real thing, but that's something that like, um, I think a lot of white people like like to like who are like higher minded like to hold on to but i that's no that's not a thing it's not a thing like cause, i mean i think it depends on who you ask i think there are some people that be like yeah i'll do business with the colors for a couple hundred sacks and some will be like very on their position like i'd rather starve than work with the <laughs> work with the negroes but i think it depends in- on who your white is I don't even think that. I think there's a point where, like, white people are, like, done. Like, I, like, there's a, they're, they're, like, once you start going up, like, once you start climbing the ladder, there's a certain section where it's, like, you have, you, we would rather, like, you have to cut off your own arms rather than admit black people. Because that's why black, that's why, like, money doesn't save you from racism. <laughs> right. But I think, you know, going back to what you said, you have to get to a certain point up that ladder. Like, Ethan Zobel is at the bottom of the shit heap, you know? He hasn't ascended to that level yet where he can just be like, I'd rather cut off my arm where you have literally nothing. Um, I, 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 I think it takes all kinds of whites, and he was an off-white in that situation. <laughs> um. We keep, oh, and by the way, we keep calling him them Aryan eight nation, and I even put Aryan nation in my notes. But the 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 white separatist group they belong to is called Lone League of American Nationalists. Um, 
Don't so it's, it's, it's the same type of people, to be honest with you. It's the, it's the exact people. I literally, but- like, <laughs> I literally don't care. <laughs> like, they're all the same to me. <laughs> like, I mean, some, sometimes you have your off-whites, you have your eggshell whites, you have your, no, <laughs> your, your muted whites, no. your matte white, your glossy white, your high shadow white. Benjamin Moore has 50 different shades of white. That's all no, I'm saying. No, just... <laughs> It's all white. That's it. That's all I got for you. Um, so besides Zobel, we're also dealing with the real IRA, which Clay has made a struck up a deal with in this right. season. In the back half of season two. Right. Um, but before we leave Zobel, let's get into really quickly some things that happened as a result of Zobel and Loan. Um, they they um Zobel and Loan get the, the actual area nation in prison to gouge out Otto's good eye. Otto's been rotting in prison for several years now. The show eludes at least 10 on some club related shit. And he only has the one good eye and the area nation takes the other on Zobel's orders, um, in, in retaliation for something that the club did. And, um, Lone and Zobel and his boys also rape Gemma in order to send a message to Sam Crow. Um, I hate that plot, but it's there. What are you going to do? I hate the plot, and yet I think it makes perfect sense. This is something that, that that white supremacist groups do literally all the time. I mean, this is something that gangs and militaries do all the time, use rape as um, a military tactic um, or to, uh, a scare tactic or an intimidation tactic. And Gemma is considered the, the queen of Sam Crow. It makes perfect sense to me. Even Gemma... Later, finally, being able to talk about what happened to her and using it in order to manipulate a reconciliation between Clay and Jax is also perfectly in line with the Gemma character. But she doesn't use it to manipulate them. It just is. And it brings them together. Like, it's not... But she doesn't even tell them until Jax um, threatens to leave the sons. Right, which is why I hate it. Like it's ultimately just a device to bring together to to resolve this tension between Jax and Clay. That's why I hate it. Um, like it's not that I don't think it makes sense. Sure, fine, I buy it. It's how it's resolved. I rape is just one of those things. I don't um, where I I don't have a tolerance anymore for like narratives that use a woman's rape to like fix things between men or like make it ultimately about the male characters or like forward the story of the male characters like I I just don't sorry sorry not sorry I don't fuck with that anymore no that's valid that's really valid and I think the one thing that I can say about it is um and I agree that it shouldn't have been used as a device um, to for for healing for the male characters. I do think that it was realistic to the context. In this season, um, we also lose another wife. Otto loses his wife in this season. Um, his wife, Luann, is a former porn star who currently owns her own studio. And apparently, even though he's been in jail, his wife has been making payments for to the club for years. Luann is killed. He's run off the road and is killed. But Otto is in prison on some club shit. His wife is giving money to the club. 
Then he he finds out not only that she died, so he loses his eye, he loses his wife, all while he sat up in prison on some club shit. And if that's not a cautionary tale, I don't know what is. In the back half of like the of season two, the sons are trying to get back their their gun connection because how they get guns is from outside the country because um, they've since lost it and they're trying to get it back through connections that they have uh, from the real IRA. Things come to a head when, once again, Agent Stahl, in an attempt to bring them down, like, does her own sort of shady deeds. And she kills, yeah, the son of a real IRA member. And when she kills the son, uh, she blames it on the sons of anarchy. So the season ends with... Uh, Ethan Zo like the last sort of dregs of Ethan Zobel being driven out of charming due to him, his CIA, like FBI connection and his plan and his general plans being thwarted. And this person, this real IRA member, kidnaps Jax's son, Abel, and takes him and leaves. And that is how season two ends. Whew, that was a lot. (laughs) But season two throws a lot of action. I don't feel like um, it was was an overwhelming amount to take in. So thank you for that, (laughs) I guess. All right, so what do we think of season two? Is it good, bad, or basic? It's good. I generally think the show is like very good. Uh, Like I said, I don't mess with uh, that rape plot at all. I don't do rapes of women that are used to like unify men or drive men's stories. That's really boring to me. And I mean, I suppose to the show's credit, like Tara does like encourage Gemma to seek help. She ultimately doesn't. Gemma ultimately doesn't because she's a racist. That's essentially what happens. But um, because she sees that the therapist is black and then she's like, I'm out. But, uh... <laughs> Hate to see it. But the accuracy, though. But that... I know, but that's so accurate. Like, but I... Like I said, but even a racist white woman, like, I guess I have compassion. Who knew? Um, uh, that sucks to me. But, uh, I like it. I think it's, there's a lot of good here. I really... We haven't talked a lot about Gemma a lot we've sort of like talked about her in relation to the plot, but there's a lot that goes on with Gemma, Gemma and Tara specifically. I think their dynamic and the deepening of that relationship, that is very interesting um, to me. There's so much that's happening there. That's really great. I love the tension that happens between Clay and Jax, the sort of how that's built and, and rackets up through Throughout the throughout season two, I just wish they would have found a better way to resolve it. There's something very interesting between them in terms of I think this idea of like not the impatience of youth, but the way that young people feel um, an urgency to do the things that are right in a way that old people um, older people don't. It's really interesting to me, particularly at our present moment, because I think we're struggling with that now, I think, as a culture. So that was really interesting. Um, Because Jax's whole thing is, like, when they lose the gun connection, Jax is like, that's fine. Let's just invest more into this 
the porn business because guns are dirty anyway. And the guns are bringing us violence that we don't Mm -hmm. want anyway. Jax is very adamant about not wanting to reconnect the sons with guns and Clay very much is. Clay wants things to be the way that they've always been. So I think that struggle, that 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 struggle between them that's very ideological uh is interesting. And also I think the the larger thematic elements of that are are interesting to ruminate on. Um there's a lot to chew on in season two that I really like. So yes, good. Yeah, I also thought that season two was very good as well. Yeah, there's just there's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot going on. There, the relationships are woven, whether they're functional or dysfunctional. I feel like are woven very, very tightly. The plots are tight. I don't feel like there are any plot holes. And we have reviewed shows before that have glaring plot holes because they were trying to do too much, and couldn't resolve it all. Um, but no, season two is is good. It's cohesive. It's a good follow up. Um, I still feel like the writers are very much on their job. Season two will sort of also be the end of Sons of Anarchy's like really wry sense of humor. Um, the show has a sense of humor to it that's also very similar to like I think Breaking Bad as well um, in terms of its comedy. It very much has a, a dark a dark situational humor to it. Um, and season season two will mark an end to that, which is fitting. It works. It does. It doesn't feel too abrupt. It's just that as things get more and more tense and more and more dark, um, we kind of, it, it has to, the, the material gets darker to to showcase that. Let's get into season three, also 13 episodes long. Much of the season is spent trying to find Abel and bring him home. And we get lots of Northern Ireland action. We also get a guest star cameo from Stephen King in episode three. He plays a cleaner, basically the guy that you, you call to dispose of your bodies. <laughs> oh, that's who that is. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Stephen King. That's um. That's funny. Uh, okay. So, and it's yeah. so fitting, though. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's so fitting. He looks like that to be his job if he wasn't a writer. <laughs> Um, at the end of season two, the the death of the the son of the IRA member, Stahl is the real one that killed him, but Stahl blames it on Gemma. So Gemma is now on the run, and she had to go on the run before she found out that Abel was kidnapped. Jax is not handling the kidnapping of his son well. The loss of his child is, is yeah, it hits him pretty hard because it's sort of the one thing he can do and is doing that is of merit um, and is not tainted by everything else. But it is now. It's being tainted now. And we see this struggle in Jax in Ireland when he actually finds Abel again. Because So Jax wants to speak with this priest who's a member of the real IRA. And he basically says, do X, Y, Z, and your son will be, reun- will be um, brought home to his loving family. And he says this in such a way that any normal person would assume you're going to give me my kid back. But he says, quote, you do this and your your son will be brought home to his loving family. And he means a family that's not Jack's. He means uh, a married uh, Catholic couple in Ireland who 
for all intents and purposes, would be a much safer um, fit for Abel. And when Jax learns this, that he that this priest basically sold his son off um, and um, illegally adopted him out to this couple, he's broken and he finds these people. And when he sees them with Abel, he's ready to leave Abel behind and be like, and really give his son a better life. And I was telling this to Alex, but like, you guys, this is the first time I've ever, ever seen a father wrestle with the decision of adoption ever. Right. And it's, and I guess it is because he is the primary parent because by now Wendy's just, Wendy's left. Wendy leaves at the end of, of season one, actually. Yeah. And the only reason why he sort of goes back on it is because earlier in this season, before that happened, Tara's sort of acting bonkers emotionally. And it's because, you know, she's pregnant with Jax's child and she's trying to decide what to do and um, not only what to do, but then like, you know, pregnancy and, you know, pregnancy hormones that Gemma finds out and, and keeps her secret. But once Jax is sort of like, I think I'm just gonna let Abel go, Gemma spills the beans and she, well, not she spills the beans, Gemma manipulates him into being like, you need to come back. You need to bring your son back so he can be a big brother to to his other, to his younger brother who's who's coming. Right, yeah. So she 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 spills Tara's secrets like Abel's gotta be a big brother. You gotta bring him home. And like legit, if if Tara hadn't been pregnant, he would have let Abel go. We see him wrestle with this decision. We see it breaking him. But the decision has been made until Gemma decides to let the cat out of the bag. Um, so that is like a major turning point. You you would think that the kidnapping of Abel and eventually getting him back and then Tara having another baby, you know, he has another son on the way, would have scared him straight. Nope. So other things that happen this season. So another thing, another big thing that happens this season is we meet Maureen Ashby. Maureen Ashby was... Jax's father's lover when Jax is returning to the state Maureen puts a bunch of like letters into his suitcase and essentially those letters detail how both Gemma and Clay were instrumental in the death of his his father we also learn that Jax has a half-sister yeah I don't care like she has no bearing I don't even know why that was like a thing because she's there for two seconds and then like what was the it was her? it was literally interjected for comedy because he like almost hooks up with her yeah and then the, the, everybody gets a nice laugh when they realize whoo that was close thank goodness we didn't fuck because you know you're we have a we share a father <laughs> right it's like like I get it they're trying to like ha ha funnies but it's like no this is kind of gross. <laughs> like, I feel like isn't Chucky enough of like funnies? Although I have a lot of empathy for Chucky. Yeah. So we meet Chucky in, I believe it was season one. And Chucky is a yeah. chronic masturbator. And he's taken in by the club. And 
you know, he's just like, he's just at that, like that wayward dog you found on the streets. He took home, gave him a nice meal and he's super duper loyal. He's fun. He's down for anybody. He's not about subterfuge or backdoor dealings or ulterior motives or playing favorites. Everybody can count on Chucky. Everybody he's a ride can count on guy. Chucky. Low key. Chucky firmly stays in his lane. Chucky is also the only person in the course of this series who I wanted to win. I was like, it's okay. Yeah, I wanted Chucky to win. I also wanted Wendy to win once it was clear that she was clean and she had planned on staying clean. I knew that certain characters would meet a bad end. Um, I think the show is really, really good about laying the groundwork for character arcs. Like, you can see as early as season one how some characters are going to end. Agent Stahl and Jimmy O'Fallon are killed in this third season as well. So, season three ends with um, Jax initially makes a deal or appears to make a deal with Agent Stahl to give up the club members. And um, to give up the club members. Uh, But it is, in fact, a large sort of intricate uh, conspiracy, um, not conspiracy, but large intricate sort of plot where, in fact, uh, Stahl is murdered as retribution for Donna. Jimmy O'Fallon is taken care of. There's a large intricate plot, and ultimately, like, Jax seems to make a deal with Agent Stahl, but in reality, it is a large intricate plot. The sons ultimately do have to go to prison for a year, but it is only a year versus the many years that they should be in prison for all their crimes committed. And um, that is how season three ends. What do we think of season three? Is it good, bad, or basic? Um, Season three is fine for me. Um, I like it. I like there's a lot of things. I generally found all the IRA stuff kind of like, like, uh, it was a, it's a slog for me, but it's necessary for the sake of like, you're getting a lot of backstory about John. Um, yeah, there's, there's just like lots of backstory and stuff about John and Gemma and Clay and like that history and, um, how Sam Crow interconnects with like the IRA and like in that chapter and how that all came about and comes about and why that connection exists. And those things are ultimately important. So um, it's, it's fine. It's, it's good. I still label it and put it in the good category. Yeah. I felt similar about them being in Ireland. I understand why we needed the backstory on John and how, what uh, an interesting role it played in Abel's kidnapping but I know that the, I know that this writer's room was strong enough to have given us these particular plot points without taking us to Ireland. Um, you know, I kind of have like sh- like episodes of shows that I don't like or plot points of shows that I don't like, and this is one of them. I hate the "Let's Go Abroad" plots. I hate the musical episodes, and I hate black and white episodes, and I hate a uh, "Let's Go Back in Time and See What If" episodes. <laughs> I hate all of those, (laughs) but this, they did it as well as could be expected. Honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. I think it was well done considering the circumstance. Right. I think like, I only hate like, let's go abroad, like episodes. If they're so, it's so obvious like that they're not actually abroad, which is the case. (laughs) 
<laughs> Those are the absolute year. worst. And there you have it, folks. This is everything that we think made the first half of Sons of Anarchy good, bad, basic, and thought-provoking. If you'd like to check out the series, Sons of Anarchy is currently streaming on Hulu. Please let us know your thoughts on this series via our Twitter or Instagram. If you're a GBB patron on our top two tiers, be sure to check out our Sons of Anarchy Spotify playlist. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic, be sure to share it with your friends. Tune in next week when we'll be diving into the back half of Sons of Anarchy and sharing our thoughts on the last four seasons of this series. In the meantime, Alex and I have another Gone Too Soon episode for patrons on our top two tiers. This time, we'll be featuring ABC's short-lived teen drama, My So-Called Life. If you'd like to check out or relive the series before then, My So-Called Life is currently streaming on abc.go. Our Gone Too Soon episode goes live this Saturday. Follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic on all major podcast platforms. Listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. Leave us a review on your preferred platform and share our weekly episodes on your social media. Please follow us at The Good, Bad, Basic on Twitter and at Good, Bad, Basic Pod on Instagram to get in on our daily content. Also, be sure to follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash good, bad, basic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes as well as exclusive bonus material. Until next time. Bye, everyone.